Welcome to Mwango Spaces, hosted by Mwango Capital, that is a research company that leverages on digital media to provide simplified coverage on companies across East Africa's financial markets. And they also ensure investors understand what companies do and also help them digest company financials and business news also. And Mwango Capital also runs a blog that has over 1,000 subscribers. You can start by going through their Twitter pages and you can subscribe to the newsletter as well. We are hosting a space on women in business, women in finance, women who are standing out across Africa. This particular space is in partnership with EFG Hamis. And for those of you who do not know about it, EFG Hamis Kenya was launched in 2017 or 2017. It was the firm's first foray into sub-Saharan Africa in a step that would then serve as an East African hub into the neighboring markets as well. And the firm's plan then was to expand into high potential frontier markets. And they managed to do that across board. And what they specialize in basically securities brokerage. EFG Hamis Kenya Securities Brokerage is run by talented professionals with a proven track record of uncovering compelling frontier opportunities. And they also do research. They've been ranked the number one research company, at least in Europe, Middle East, and Africa by Institutional Investor in 2017, and have consistently attained a leading position in prominent global polls. The EFG Hamis research provides insights into some of the world's most compelling emerging market opportunities. And they have so many clients spread across the East African markets of Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda. And the EFG Hamis Nigeria, just to clarify, only serve institutional clients. So you can basically read about EFG Hamis across Africa, the work they do, and you'll be able to find a way. If you're an investor and you're in this space, you probably would pick some interest by going through their profile as well as their website. Let me start by introducing myself. My name is Joy Doreen Bira. I am a strategic communicator who has been in the media industry for well over 12 years. I have a passion for business and a bias towards so many topics. And one of them is women who are doing business. I said that when we're starting this conversation, I should pose the question whether or not we are women in business or are we women who are doing business? I think that would be a great way to kick off this conversation, but allow me introduce my speaker panel for today. And we have Lillian Olubi, who is the CEO for EFG Hamis Nigeria Limited. And she is qualified in finance and investment with over 20 years of experience in capital markets and proven skills in leadership, strategic planning, business growth, asset management, and funding operations. Welcome to the space, Lillian. We also have Dr. Diane Karusisi, Chief Executive Officer, Bank of Chigali, PLC. And she is the CEO, of course, of the largest commercial bank in Rwanda which has attained a tremendous digital transformation process under her supervision. And she's pushed the growth of BK Group into general insurance, 
investment, banking, and technology. And she's also worked as chief economist and head of strategy and policy at the Office of the President of the Republic of Rwanda before joining BK Group. It's great to have you on the space, Diane. Thank you, Joy. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. We also have Rosemary Ngure, independent consultant, sustainability at ESG and Impact, if I got that right. She is an accomplished ESG, sustainability and corporate legal professional with over 20 years experience in delivering effective legal and compliance advice to boards and management across a variety of sectors. And she's also worked for the Nairobi Securities Exchange. I think that's where I first met Rose. And she's also worked at Jubilee Insurance at the United States International University and at Catalyst Principal Partners and CarePoint, formerly Africa Health Holdings. And she's also a 2020 awardee of the Angaza Awards. It's great to have you. Rosie, Rose? Rosie, too. Thank you, Joy. Great. And we also have Phyllis Wakiaga, an industrialization expert. She is a senior development advisor at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. She's also served as the chief executive officer of the Kenya Association of Manufacturers between the years 2015 and 2022. And she's also served as Kenya Airways uh, customer experience executive and manager for government and industry affairs before she joined the Global Compact Network Kenya as their board chair. And there's so many other appointments that have come recently. I think, Phyllis, you need to tell us about these so many boards that you're sitting on today because there are quite a number recent appointments that have been made the last couple of months. I think it's really great to have you on here. Really honored to have you on here. Phyllis, say something. Thanks, Joy Dorin. It's a pleasure to be here for this conversation today. It's a privilege also to be on the panel with very distinguished women leaders from different parts of Africa and drive a conversation around what is happening on women in finance and women in business and finance. So yeah, great pleasure to be here. And yes, I've had a few positive things happen in the last few months and I'm grateful because they give me an opportunity to also impact society and also contribute my peace in a time such as this. Thanks. Congratulations on all of the appointments. We're so happy for you. So to kick this off, we're going to start with a conversation. And earlier I had posted it while I was preparing for this space. I was watching a TED Talk by Kirsten Hall, who was saying that sometimes it's a little condescending when people are celebrated as women in business. So this is a question I want to pose to us all, our speakers. Do you feel offended when you are referred to as a woman in business? I'm going to start with Rosie. Thanks, Joy Doreen. That's an interesting question, and I did have a chance to listen to the TED Talk. And just like Kristen Hall, it makes me a bit uncomfortable. I don't find it condescending, but it does make me uncomfortable. And I have had to ask myself why. For instance, when I set up a consultancy business with two male partners, 
I remember they were really pushing the whole women-led business and that sort of thing. And I was like, are these people just taking advantage of me because I'm a woman? And I had to ask myself, why is this making me uncomfortable? Is it just a label that I'm not used to? Or is it something that I feel carries some negative weight, so to speak, with it? But like you said, women in business or what was the other term? Women doing business. For me, it shouldn't really matter. But once you also acknowledge the place that women are coming from and the inequality that is there, you can see why such titles and labels and discussions are necessary. So I'd rather not be referred to as a woman in business or have my gender referred to at all. Like Kristen says in her TED talk, you know, prefer to be known for the quality of the work that I do. But I also do appreciate the environment that we are living in and why these labels do come up. Great. Thank you. Lillian, I would like to hear your perspective. So thank you. To be honest, I don't find it so condescending. I think I see it more in the context of what it is. And so for me, just sort of growing up, I grew up in a very male home. I have four older brothers and I grew up with male cousins. And I had the fortune, of course, of having not seen the barriers as most people have experienced. And I don't, even till now, as we move with these issues and topics of distinction, I understand it's almost from an exterior point of view versus inside because I didn't grow up with that sort of barrier. But I do understand the context. It is that we're trying to lead change in a certain area. And so the distinction comes up because discourse needs to be heard. And so in that context, it's just what it is, is that we're trying to draw light to a certain space and to give color to something. Having said that, I also think that when you have built, when you really think about it, and if you think about it in a contending way, or the opposite way, I should say, there's a way or a place you get to where it ought not to be an issue of distinction in that sense. And I guess the key or the driver should be for those of us who feel when we feel the offense is to just lead in the way that the leading speaks for itself, where the distinction doesn't even appear because there is such dominance and influence and wherever we are. And hopefully this momentum moves to a point where it no longer becomes an item to specify in that way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Diane, you know, we celebrate women in business probably exclusively celebrating women in business and the achievements, of course, based on the fact that especially women in business and finance tend to be referred to with a connotation of it's so hard to be in this space, but look, here you are, you're in this space. How does that make you feel? So look, it's an interesting question because as Lillian said, I also grew up to believe I could do anything. And I sometimes get offended when I get the feeling that I'm being referred to as a woman, not just as the CEO of the bank who happens to be a woman. So it has been a problem, but I think I'm now taking advantage of the fact that they refer to me, they call me to be on panels, etc. Sometimes because they want the gender balance and we have so many men who can weigh in on topics, finance, economy, etc. And many times they want to have a woman on the panel. So I think it gives me an opportunity to be on that panel and to share my perspectives, to also have my voice and what is a very important topic. So I can now take advantage and I've also learned with my team that is in charge of PR. They always tell me, take advantage. If they call you, it's an opportunity for us to be out there, for us to be known and for us to also tell the good things we're doing. So yeah, I now enjoy it being a, a woman CEO, not only a CEO who happens to be a woman, I actually enjoy it. 
And uh, I very much take advantage of the fact that I'm being called and referred to as, as that person. And uh, we get to answer questions that are very varied, family, business, politics. And I actually feel it's important that our voices are heard up there. Thank you. Felix, have you been on a panel where you're all women and it kind of feels mm -hmm. different when the panel is all female, <laughs> the moderator is female, just like we're doing. How does that feel? And also, in addition to that, being referred to as a woman in business, woman in manufacturing, woman in finance. Thanks. Thanks, Jared. Doreen, I think very exciting to be on a panel where we are just women. Maybe we needed diversity, who knows? <laughs> but yes, the reality, I want to just relate to what the panelists have said, like Lillian and the rest. I grew up in a house, I'm an only girl, so I grew up with boys. I was gender blind for a while there, and I didn't see the need to differentiate between being a boy or being a girl because my parents made it clear that it didn't matter. But the issue of referring to either what we do and trying to bring out the issue of either women in business or women CEOs, what I've used it as is an opportunity to elevate the tenor of dialogue around sometimes what the reality is for women. If you look at certain sectors, like the sector I worked in for the last nine years, which is manufacturing, it's very heavily male-dominated. So until we had the conversation on women in manufacturing, set up the women in manufacturing platform, those conversations were not being had. And out of that, we saw more women actually get into manufacturing because that conversation started. So I think there's the positive side to it, where we can use it as an opportunity to really just bring out the issues, the challenges, the barriers create visibility and become deliberate about seeing how we can get more women to get involved, whether it's in leadership, whether it's in sectors like manufacturing, whether it's in business, in finance, in IT. It just really helps to utilize these platforms to do something about bringing the positive change. And also to be conscious about the fact that not everything is perfect for women. Some of us may be sitting in positions, but a woman in Turukana somewhere still spends half her day going to look for firewood or to look for water. So the inequalities are still real. We've made great strides, but we can't be blind and think that everything has been addressed. So it's important that we still keep having these conversations until we really, really elevate and address the issues affecting women everywhere. I love that. And women in business, women on boards, women in finance, women in manufacturing, women in the different spheres of doing extraordinary work, I think that is a conversation that we can't stop having, given the fact that we are in this space where equality is still everyone's business. It's everyone's problem. It doesn't matter which workspace one is in, it really is everyone's business. And so now that that's out of the way and we've tackled the issue of the connotations around women in business, women in finance and manufacturing, I guess now it's time for us to delve deeper into this conversation because just like Phyllis has mentioned and really everybody, Lillian, Rosie and Diane have mentioned that sitting on these panels, being referred to as a woman in business, it does help spread the word about bringing up other women, being role models, being mentors to other women around us and in the same business as well. So I would like for us to talk about career because this is something that I guess we can't stop talking about because the reality is that there's still fewer women in business, fewer women in finance. 
and all the other sectors. And I want to start by asking Diane to begin with, how has it been, possibly you could take us right from the start about your career and how it started, how the interest in finance was groomed, because usually getting to the top as a woman, it really comes with so much. There's so much that you really have to push through to get to the top. But if you could take us through that, what has it taken and what are some of the key elements that you think have helped you get to the top? Thank you. It's an important question. To talk about myself a bit, I studied abroad in Switzerland, where I did statistics and econometrics. And as a student, I was always a very rigorous student, wanted to learn more, to do better. And eventually, right after I graduated, I got an opportunity to, to do a PhD and to teach statistics at the university where I graduated. So I spent there a couple of years teaching, but also doing my PhD. Again, in Switzerland, most people, after they graduate, they either go to the finance industry or to pharma or sometimes manufacturing. So I got an opportunity to work for a large uh, Swiss bank, Credit Suisse, and I was uh, a number cruncher. So my job was to work uh, term sheets, models, predicting uh, interest rates, movements, etc. So it's a period where I actually learned a lot because I really enjoyed crunching numbers, you know, for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. And at the time, I actually enjoyed working there, but I never saw myself as a leader because I really loved going into my numbers and I really found joy there. But I decided to move back home, and that was in 2009, and I got an opportunity to work for the government of Rwanda. And for those of you who are in Rwanda or who read or learn about Rwanda. It's a country on the move, a lot of great things happening. So I felt I wanted to come back and, and contribute to what was happening here. So the first job I got was to work for the statistics agency. And it was actually very interesting because before moving back to Rwanda, I had never lived in Rwanda. This is again the history of the country and my family. I was born abroad, studied abroad. I actually moved back only in 2009. And it was an opportunity for me to learn the country, to understand what the country is about, what the great things that were happening, who was behind, etc. So I worked for the statistics agency for a couple of years. We ran the, the surveys, the census where I traveled the country and actually fell in love again with the country. And I really felt I wanted to be part of uh, the transformation journey of the country. After that, I got an opportunity to work for the president in his office. Of course, it's the highest office in the country where all the decisions are made. And you really see things happening, things moving, decisions being taken, impact on the ground. And this was quite inspiring. And then after I got the opportunity to come back to the financial sector, because the, the, the board at the time was looking for someone who was a bit younger, with a new perspective, because the situation was that the bank had grown to become the largest bank, but was lagging very much behind in terms of digital transformation. So they wanted someone with a different perspective. And I came to be that person. And I remember joining the Bank of TIA, that was about six years ago. I was always telling my colleagues in my next life, I'll be an IT person because everything now is about technology. And I learned technology because I believe now banking, mainly financial services, it's more technology companies that happen to do finance, but technology is very much part of everything we do. So I actually delved myself into learning, understanding how technology works even speaking the language of technology. And it's become a passion. And today, 
what I tell everyone is that we can do anything. You really need to have the passion and the will to go beyond what is expected of you. And I think it's happening. And in this country, I mean, my country is extremely inspiring. Things happen every day. When I visit clients, I see the impact of the work we do every day and we finance a company. They grow, they expand the business. It can be a manufacturing company. It can be a company that's producing power. And you actually see the impact. And this really inspires me to move faster, bolder, and better every day. So that's my, my bit of experience. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for that. And it's really impressive that you mentioned before 2000, you had not been to Rwanda. Am I right? 2009, your first job was as a step agency in Rwanda. Exactly. So I had been to Rwanda for the holidays, but I had never lived in Rwanda before. Wow. Yeah. So I'm going to probably get into the part where I ask, what did it take? Like, what are some of those values that you cherish the most when it comes to where you're at right now? Because there's so many hurdles that women have had to navigate in this space and probably the advantage that you might have had was that you were born in a space where you believed everything was possible you can be anything you want to be you can do anything you want to do but that has not been the case for many women in africa what would you say to that i agree i think i was very privileged to be born in a family where everything was possible but again, I believe that I'm in charge of my destiny. What is happening today, what I'm doing today, is not something my family is telling me to do. It's something I believe is the right thing for me to do. And I keep telling my colleagues and young women, when I get an opportunity to talk to them, you can still decide what you want to be. Of course, you have a background. Your upbringing will have an impact or influence on how you behave, etc. But you still can take a decision to lead, to excel. because. Again, most of the things I'm doing now, I don't think I learned them when I was a young person, but every day we have an opportunity to learn and to get better, you know, one step at a time. And I think it's really, really important for people to believe that they have the agency to decide what they want to do and who they want to be eventually. I like that. Every day we have an opportunity to learn and just be who you want to be. Lillian, I'm now coming to you. Because I know that you have an experience as so much women can learn from your experience as well. Having worked at different companies, you talk about technology, banking, insurance, investment. Those are things that would possibly describe you in some way or another, but also skills in leadership, strategic planning, business growth, asset management and funding operations, all of that encompasses your entire profile. So I want to know from you, if I'm going to ask the same question I'd posed to Diane, but in addition to how have you made it to where you are, you could possibly also respond to what keeps you going at the top as a woman in finance and business. Okay. Thank you very much. So I think I'll start with how we got here. I think when I think about the factors and there were three, I think, key influencing factors that led me to this part. One was my father. My father happened to have had an extensive career in capital markets. All of his career pretty much was central bank and then eventually to the SEC. 
So I think I developed a legacy interest in hindsight. I didn't realize then that there was those silent things you're learning or perceiving, but I think there was something there. Then I also had a mentor friend who was a stockbroker. I had the opportunity to visit him on one occasion and I liked the sound of trading. He was on the phone at the time having crossing deals and talking about companies in unit forms and saying, Cadbury, you know, do you have 100,000 units? Do you have this? And I found it very fascinating, just the way he was breaking down these blue chip companies in units and making all these deals and trades. And then when it was time to do my thesis in my final year, like most people, I didn't know what I wanted to do all of school. This was now final year. It was now time to write my project. And I decided to write about the capital markets. And I did so quite selfishly because I thought, okay, my father's in the industry. I can pull that influence and get information. And I have this friend, you know. And so, but it was in the process of doing that thesis and writing about the history of the capital markets and the development and the progress and prospects that I think my love for the capital markets was really sealed. And I started to see how the markets had evolved and what financial services was all about. And one of the days when I was on the floor of the stock exchange at the library at the time, collecting information for my thesis, I sat, I was standing over the balustrade watching them trade. And then they used to trade what you call the callover. We didn't have the systems at the time. And I saw this mass of men shouting across tables, transacting, a lot of uh, testosterone pumping. They were referred to as city gentlemen. And it's interesting to mention that to, to date, <laughs> all stockbrokers in Nigeria are still called city gentlemen. But as wide as it was and very male-dominated, it felt like home. For the first time, I sat over that balustrade and watched everybody trading. And I liked the concept. I liked what I was learning. And I felt it was somewhere I could thrive. I felt like I belonged there. And it felt like a confluence of everything that I have desired, so to speak, and coming together in this one profession. And so this was how the love began. And then I took the liberty also then, and I guess it's important to mention because it's one of the things that makes it very important when we talk about mentorships and having people who guide us through our career path, was that this mentor friend of mine was gracious enough when I said that I wanted to build a career here to give me an idea of how to start. And he gave me four, he wrote down, I remember very well on a piece of paper, four companies, four stockbroking firms that he thought were very good foundational firms that he thought I would grow and expand in. And one of them was one of the oldest companies in the market at the time. And of course, they had a full range of services. They were doing registrar functions. They were doing financial advisory, asset management, stockbroking. And so there I started as a youth copper, what we call here in Nigeria, youth copper, one-year service program before you get into mainstream doing these various roles and being tossed around, jumping from one place. You were literally almost the house girl, so to speak, you know, everything that anybody wanted, they pulled on you. And I was doing it just sort of gracefully and learning the ropes. I emphasize that again, because I also see a, a growing crop of people who these days shy away from the hard work or shy away from the groundwork, I should say, which when I look back was such a strong foundation for me in everything that I have become. When just being graciously being tossed around and doing everything I could do, learning at each stage and everywhere there was a need, I was jumping in. And, and eventually my last role in that, in that job was a sales role, which actually all this time I had been doing a lot of the back office and operational work. And in that opportunity to do a sales role, it was kind of daunting, but I took the plunge and I said, you know what, I can do this. And I saw that it was actually 
everything that I had learned on the back of his side gave me strength for the role. And so I found that I, there was quite some distinction in my ability because I knew the operation side of work. And so it was in doing the sales role and finding some grace and excellence there that I would be found by the CEO of the next company that I worked, who reached out to me. And in that second company, I had the opportunity to develop my leadership skills. My networking skills were honed. Luckily, it was a boss who was very, what would I call it? Very welcoming of women, gave women opportunities. He was a great leader. And then it was also in that place, having served there for about six years, now had the opportunity to consider a setup and somebody who I had worked with, a colleague of mine, was trying to set up a stockbroking firm. And because we had worked together, he knew my work ethic and obviously was impressed by my service, asked me to join him to set up this business, which we eventually did called Primera at the time. And we built over, I think about six years, what was a formidable company from scratch, an institution that EFG Hermes would come to Nigeria and obviously find as a decent bride to take on wanting to come into the frontier space in Nigeria and of course asking me to stay. And so that has been the whole literally 20 plus years of my experience doing various things and having to lead in different life cycles of businesses. And so having to do startup, having from foundation, doing all the groundwork to leading transition in another business cycle. And then of course, starting up a business and then of course being acquired by EFG and then the continuation of that. So all of these skills being honed, just working as graciously and gracefully as one could and gaining as much ground. And it sort of boils down to the final question you asked about what makes me tick. It is really that when you look at the financial services space, and it's interesting that we're talking now particularly about women and our roles, is that there is such a huge imperative for women to take up space in this landscape, in the landscape of finance, as professionals and as investors. That when you look at the studies that have been done that looks at the impact, performance of growth of businesses where women had leadership positions. The writings on the wall, it's very clear the impact that we've had. So we miss the representation when we're not a part of it. And when you even look deeper at the capital market and what the capital market represents from a standpoint of the code of ethics, of trust, of integrity, of equity, and not to say that any gender is less of that, but that we have almost by our innate proclivities, we're suited for the space. And I've also had my hands in the microfinance space as well and many other parts of finance. And you see all over the space how women, the impact that we make on society, the impact we make on families. And so that issue also of investing and empowering ourselves financially is so important that it's part of the process of attaining that financial freedom is key, not just for ourselves, but for nations and for families. And the impact just goes on and on. And so it's really just to say that the space that we ought to try thriving there are no b barriers and boundaries in that space. Obviously, as we go along with the session, we'll talk more around the trajectory and the learnings and the different ways that we can position for growth. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And I can see you probably were inspired by first at home and then outside by a friend and then going ahead to even watch people that you found interesting, like finding a group of people talking about capital markets and the adrenaline, I can imagine how motivating that must have been at that time when you were writing your thesis. Interesting. And now I want to come to Rosie. Rosie, there's so much that people can say about getting inspiration or the lack thereof that affects who they become in the future. Is there a specific 
trajectory that could determine that one would succeed in business, in finance, in manufacturing as a woman, because from the introductions that all of us have given, myself inclusive, it's just that I didn't say it, is that we all grew up in male-dominated families. Does that even have an impact, for lack of a better way to put it, on what we turn out to be in the future? Thanks, Joy. Actually, maybe I didn't mention this, but I come from a family of five girls, no brother. So it was very largely female-dominated. <laughs> Other speakers have said before me, you just never felt different. You know, being a girl or a boy just n didn't really seem to matter. And my dad never allowed societal pressure to make him feel some type of way because he didn't have a son. He poured everything into us. So the world was our oyster, so to speak. So... He's definitely a great inspiration. My mother was a career woman, worked her way right up to the chief nursing officer of Kenya. I have sisters who've been in corporate. I think a couple of them might be here. There's a lot of inspiration around. Like, I think it was Diane who said earlier, you know, we are dealt the cards that we are dealt in life. And I think it really is up to us how best to just deal with the situation that we have. I like to think of work with what you have, start where you are with what you have and move from there. And just put in everything that you have. And I know there's that argument. Sometimes people can poke holes in it and find it problematic. But I think it's all you can do is to start with what you have. So the level of education that you have, the people around you, you know, getting to know yourself. If you're a bit recluse or shy, what have you, know that networking and talking to people opens doors. So there's a lot of little bits and, and, and bobs around that in terms of where inspiration can come from. So mine definitely came from home, but the trajectory itself, if I may go there, Joy, was a bit of an accident. I did have my first job actually before I went to university. I had a friend, a boy who was a friend, whose sister was working for an investment advisory firm. And she says to him one day, what is that friend of yours doing? You know, she needs to keep herself busy while you're waiting to go to university. So I started working with an investment advisory firm and it was interesting. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is how capital markets works. This is what the stock exchange is all about. But it was just a front office job, but they allowed me to learn the business, to really know the operations of the business. So I'd get back office work as much as I was sitting in the front office. And then I went off to the university in the UK and I'm a lawyer by profession. I studied law. So when I came back, I guess everybody thought I would go into practice, but I did not enjoy the courtroom. I did not enjoy doing conveyancing and drawing up those kind of documents. And these guys called me back. They had somebody going off on extended leave and they called me back. And I find myself back at this investment advisory firm, which then ended up being a permanent job in-house as a legal and investments officer. And... After that, it was almost like just a snowball because from there I went on to work for one of its regulators, the Nairobi Stock Exchange. It's now the Securities Exchange. And it was a fantastic time because that was when they were, in that period, they automate. So we moved from the call out to actually an automated system. And I was part of that whole process, you know, drawing up the legal papers for that and the whole process. And after that, I then worked for a listed company. They were recently listed. They needed somebody who understood the regulations and what capital markets was requiring of them as a listed company. So that is how I got that job. I worked for an insurance firm that was listed. And then I took a detour to higher education and went off to set up the in-house legal function for a private university in Kenya, USIU. And I was there about five years before I came 
back into the finance world. And that is where I met PE. PE found me. Private equity came knocking and that was my life. It has been my life for the last 10 or so years. And it was a fairly new space to myself, to many people. It's still growing really fast. Like investment banking and a lot of these other industries, there weren't a lot of women. Again, I went in more in a legal and compliance role that evolved into an institution sustainability role as well. But there were women, you know, in the investment teams and I would watch them and I'd be like, oh, wow, they're really doing great stuff. But it's been women like that along my entire career path who have really been my role models and have really inspired me. While I worked at the stock exchange, my boss at the time went on to become the CEO of CDSC, the central depositories. Central depositories, that one, you know. When I worked at the university, the vice chancellor, Professor Frida Brown, and I have had the privilege of working with a lot of great women in the boards that I served as company secretary in my role. So I have a long list of great women who have been inspirational, they've been role models, and I took it upon myself to learn from them. And I think this is sort of going into what, what has helped with the career growth and trajectory is one, leverage what you have to adapt you know, a lawyer by profession, but I saw an opportunity within and I was like, you know, this is a growing space in ESG and sustainability. I want to do this. I think it was Diane who said, you know, when you're able to see the impact that financing can do for business, for community, for society, it's quite fulfilling. So be able to adapt within the environment that you find yourself in, be able to position yourself within the environment that you find yourself in and keep reinventing on a regular basis. Thanks, Joy. Thanks a lot, Rosie. Keep reinventing, leverage what you have and adapt. I love that. Phyllis, I'm coming to you now and I would like for us to talk about the fact that, well, let me just confess that before uh, the Kenya Association of Manufacturers, I think many, many of us in Kenya probably didn't know about your background at Kenya Airways or your work at Kenya Airways. And so... Given the fact that it, your career was more pronounced while you were chief executive officer at the Kenya Association of Manufacturers, because it really does involve quite a lot of work that puts you at the forefront of nearly so much work that is being done at the Kenya Association of Manufacturers. But I think what most people would like to know is nearly all your entire career, you've been in male-dominated spaces, just like Rosie, Diane, and Lillian. And the question would be, how are you able to maintain the focus while you're doing this? And while at it, you could also take us through the journey from back then to where you are at today. Phyllis? It's very interesting listening to Lillian, Rosie, and Diane. Very, very great backgrounds and stories. So to your question, Jodorin, maybe I'll just start by giving a background about myself. I started working like one of us, I think it was Rosie, immediately after high school. When I finished high school in November, that December, I got a job at a place called Student Campaign Against Drugs, where we were doing work on advocacy around drug abuse, working with high schools volunteering at the Chiromolen Medical Center. So it was an NGO that was led by Dr. Frank Njenga, Dr. Okonji and others. So I did that for almost two years before I joined the University of Nairobi, where I went and studied law. And just like I think Rosie, who just spoke, also a lawyer by training, 
but a lawyer who didn't want to practice or become a courtroom lawyer. So I did the typical, did the clinicals, did my pupillage, was in a law firm briefly and started looking for opportunities in the corporate sector. Applied to banks at that time and different institutions. Did a little bit of a stint at Cop Bank, though it was more of a manual type of job. We were helping them cut up checks for shareholders or something. And that is one of those things. It teaches you that you need sometimes to just be humble and learn and start somewhere. Because that became then my entry point into corporate because I then got an opportunity. Kenya Airways, the lawyer in their customer relations department had left and they were looking for a replacement. I applied for the job and I got an opportunity to work in the aviation sector. The aviation sector is also a very interesting sector to work in. So it gave me a very good entry into my career, traveled a lot, understood a lot about the world because KQ at that time was operating around Africa and globally, had a lot of code share agreements and many things. So did a lot of interactions globally with the KQ team, with customers. And then after, I think, three years in that department, I got an opportunity to move to the government and industry affairs department. And that became a very good entry point then into matters of government relations, public policy. I was part of the negotiation teams for bilateral air service agreements, participated in ICAO, which is the International Civil Aviation Organization, the Africa Airlines Association. Uh, So all those opportunities just really grew me in terms of giving me a worldview and really understanding aviation policy, what was happening, how we change it, the difference it would make if we implemented things like the Yamasukro Declaration, which is basically a commitment by African countries to have open skies and things like that. So my passion for policy and the work that I then got into at KAM started from Kenya Airways. So in addition to that, as I was working, I'm one of those people who love studying. (laughs) My siblings and friends always laugh and say, I'm always learning something or going to school. So alongside working, I finished my law degree and then went and did a higher diploma in HR because I was very clear that to drive organizations, you need people. And I wanted to understand what it meant to be a good HR professional. So I did a higher diploma in HR. And then I did a master's in business administration. Basically, when you study law, you don't do anything other than law. So it gave me an opportunity to understand business broadly, finance, economics, marketing and everything. So that added a lot of value. So that was when I was in KQ. So after that, I moved to Kenya Association of Manufacturers as the head of policy, research and advocacy. And that was another great opportunity and learning curve moving from aviation into manufacturing. So starting to learn about the manufacturing sector, about international trade, a lot of work around the community, the East African community at that time, Comessa, and basically how you grow manufacturing business, about raw materials, rules of origin, so everything around the sector. So that was an exciting time. And I also took the opportunity to actually do a master's in international trade and investment law at the same time, because I thought it would be very relevant to the work that I was doing. So all this, I think, for me is really about then seeing how we can use platforms and impact and influence policy, because basically for almost the last 15 years, I've spent a lot of my time doing that. I'm seeing challenges or issues in society thinking through how we can come up with proposals to improve that, advocating for changes, seeing the changes, seeing them through, and then looking at the impact those changes have. So 
that has really been my passion. And alongside that, it gave me an opportunity also when I ran the Kenya Association of Manufacturers. I worked there for nine years. It gave me an, a platform, a very good platform to really drive the conversation around the manufacturing sector, drive the visibility around the sector, work on issues of sustainability, setting up the Center for Green Growth and Climate Change, work on issues of inclusive manufacturing. So the SME hub was set up under my tenure, the Women in Manufacturing program, and all these were really platforms to see how we could support businesses to be able to grow within manufacturing. So in my heart, I'm a believer in industrialization, not just manufacturing, but really the impact that productive sectors can have in economic transformation and really the structural transformation of economies of Africa and growing opportunities for our people. So that is something I'm passionate about. And I'm happy that the next role I've taken up at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change is in industrialization. And I'm a senior advisor there on private sector development and industrialization. So that, I think, gives me even a wider platform because it's a global role to be able to really continue the dialogue and the support and the impact that we can have in growing industrialization. In addition to that, I've also developed a passion around corporate governance I've sat in quite a number of boards, and it started in a small way by sitting in school boards, like my kids' school board, I chair it even currently. Then sitting in government boards, I've sat in the Kenya Electricity Generating Board for six years. I've sat in the Anti-Counterfeit Agency. I've sat in the Kenya Intellectual Property Institute Board. I've sat in the United States International University Governing Council, the Management University Board of Trustees, and I chaired the UN Global Compact for the last six years. So that passion of sustainable and responsible business is something that I'm also very clear about, that really as business, we must be a force for good. And how we run our businesses to be impactful is something that we really must keep at the back of our minds so that our business can contribute to transformation in society. And most recently, I was appointed to chair the Kenya Roads Board about two to three weeks ago. So that's another new experience, something that is going to be interesting because it's going to also build my capabilities around road infrastructure and the impact it can have also in a driving transformation. So that's a journey. And out of all that, I think for me, the biggest lesson I have or what I've worked with all along is really about principles because that becomes the basis of who you are all through your journey, whether you're a student, whether you're in your first job, whether you're a CEO. And principles are lifelong. And it's basic things that really are the character that you carry and who you become in life. And some of the key ones for me, which are really the basis of my values, include excellence, include the issue of human dignity, issue of integrity, humility, patience, perseverance, hard work. Because it's easy to have many shortcuts, but hard work and being willing to put in and build and having a can-do attitude as you go through life. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, Phyllis. And just looking back at the journey, I guess the part where you were at your busiest and still made time to do a master's degree, I think that that must have taken the part where you say patience and having the attitude of excellence because so many times, I guess, juggling so many things at the same time can tend to be quite a bit for us, regardless of the gender. And so seeing that you're able to do all of this 
while at the same time making time to still go back to school or going back to learn, kudos for that. There's so much that we are yet to cover and we're just about to open the space to people to ask questions. So I just wanted to hear from us, and this is a question that's going to go to all four of us on the panel. I wanted to find out what, in your view, you think the challenges are that women face that keep them from reaching out to excellence, reaching out to the top, knowing that they can be who they want to be, knowing that they can reach out for the stars and still grab them and keep it right there. Lillian, let me start with you this time. Okay. Thank you. So I find that the biggest challenge, and also from, from my experience over two decades dealing with different kinds of investors and also looking at myself as a woman in terms of just the way we are built, I see that we have a certain approach, apart from perhaps what has been societal that could have influenced, but we'll leave that. I think that we have somewhat of a different approach to finance that has made us a little less investment savvy. What I find from most of the female investors or people who shy away from the space is that we tend to feel like finance is something a little more too abstract. And it's coming because it's a, such a social science that has an art to the science of it. It's not aerodynamics or anything too deep that cannot be understood. And that we have that approach that makes us not as confident in investing, very risk averse. Studies have shown world over about the self-doubt that women usually have in their approach to investing, how we tend to be the ones who want to hold more cash. We tend to be the ones who would panic easily when markets move, which is quite an anomaly because interestingly, on the other hand, research shows that women do better and outperform even male counterparts when it comes to returns on portfolios, that usually with information that we make more balanced and informed decisions. And so it is quite a very incongruent situation wherein we are very suited by our very nature to be great investors and finance people. But in that same nature, we are also very overly conservative. And so I think it's really that there is no, I want to be a little bit more tangential with my view, is also to challenge us that the barriers are not real. So that even if I talk about all these issues around the access to making more effort, to educate, to enlighten, the reality is that all these things, the efforts to break what is an illusionary barrier, the markets have changed and are so dynamic in their form. This is not a situation in the times where, when you even think about how the market started with the Colova system, which just even from a physiological standpoint, women were disadvantaged because we couldn't shout like men on the floor. All of that is off. Now we have trading platforms that allow us to do everything as seamlessly. We have access to information that everybody has around markets, around how trading, around investments, around opportunities. So it's really just to say to people that there is no barrier. The people, who have, the people who came before us have done the harder work in breaking the barrier. For 30 years in the Nigerian capital markets, we didn't have a female stockbroker. And the women came and they, we've broken that. And we're now back in, and it's a slower growth. But to say that there are really no barriers, that the markets are free, the markets are open. And even from a career trajectory standpoint, it's also that we need to be, I think in terms of positioning, there's a slight art and a science to that growth also, in that we look at 
the kinds of, should I call it sectors or, or units that we tend to want to thrive in, that when we think about growth and where we want to be in these places, we also have to be strategic with how we position. There's just even in your journey in the career that we have to be more courageous in taking the opportunities that are there. We have to be conscious about building character. We have to be conscious about being confident and just honing our leadership skills all around, just as individuals, as people in general. And it's really just to encourage us really that the avenues are, are ripe and they're rife. There's nothing that we cannot learn. Look at the EFG platform now, the one platform that has opened up in a way that is totally all the barriers and things that would have been a distraction or some or things that would have been what you would call a disadvantage, so to speak, are not there anymore. That it's really for us to now move the needle ourselves and take on the challenges and get in there and see what's in there and begin to plan our lives more deliberately and knowing that there's nothing that's stopping us from rising up and sort of taking the landscape and learning about how it's done. I love that. There's so many nuggets I could pick from this. Those who've come before us have already broken that barrier. So we really need to be more confident, be strategic with how we position ourselves, be conscious about building character, being courageous. There's nothing we cannot learn and also planning our lives more. I think there's so much that we can learn. And I love what you just said, Lillian. I want to come to Diane. Diane, you've worked in the highest office in Rwanda. And I guess that does come with a bit of expectations, especially for women who you inspire. And then now that you are the CEO of Bank of, of Kigali PLC, there's also so much that so many other young people, not just the women, but also young people, the youth, look up to you for. And based on your experience so far, is there a difference in the approach between men and women? And what would you say are some of those things that we need to put into consideration when we are building our careers? Well, it's a difficult question. I don't know what is the approach for men because I've never been a man. But as a woman, I know that there are many limitations that are actually within ourselves more than what we would see in the society. As Lillian has said, our mothers, our aunties, they've broken so many barriers already. But we keep having some limitations, some fears uh, within us. And in my experience, and probably I've been privileged to be in an environment where actually leading as a woman was celebrated rather than looked at us as if it was something uh, unusual. Whenever I have done something against my own fears and I've risen my voice, etc., the result was always positive. Because normally you have a fear to tell people what you think, but whenever you actually tell them what you think, first of all, it's liberating, but you also see the other people appreciating that. I've found actually very rewarding to go to become a bit more fearless, not only at work, but also in the society, in business, even in the family. I always found it very rewarding to be myself, to do things my way, because it's really very liberating. And I think that you cannot be someone else. You ha really have to be yourself. So that's very important for me. What I would say as a woman, as a wife and a mother, I think I picked it from one of Sheryl Sandberg's books where she said that, I think that the way she put it, that one of the most important career choice a woman would make 
is the partner should select because you really need to have a, a partner that supportive, a partner that shows you that it's not about choosing between the family life and the business, etc. So it's really important to have the right person supporting you because, and this is human. I can imagine for men, it's the same thing. You need to have someone at home who's supportive, who'll cheer you up when you have challenges, where some days you're down. So I really feel if you have the right partner, nowadays, most of the barriers have been broken by our mothers, by some women who came before us. So we really need to go beyond this, the fears and beyond the limitations we have within ourselves to be successful in our careers. Thank you. Thank you so much. We need to go beyond the fears and limitations. I love that. And also the fact that you say we just have to be ourselves. I think that really is amazing. Whenever you've done something against your own fears, the result has been positive. And I think that's something that really holds many women back. The fear of it might go wrong. Rosie, to you now, what do you think we need to do or what do you think needs to be done to encourage more women in finance, more women in business? How do we go about channeling the energy that the four of us here on this space, or let me say five of us on this space have, channeling it to the younger women who are building careers in finance and business. Thanks, Joy Doreen. First of all, let me say, I think one of the biggest challenges is that women have largely bought into many societal notions of who we should be, how we should be, what we can do, what we can't do. And until we are ready to break a lot of those, I think we're still going to remain held back. So let's not be reluctant to break some of those societal notions. I'm talking about things where you're more appreciated if you're a wallflower, you play small. If you're assertive, you're going to be labeled aggressive, which is not a positive trait for a woman. If you're successful, somehow that's a positive thing for a man, but not always for a woman. There will be societal notions around things like that. Some women worried that people will talk about her. They will say that she couldn't have done it on her own, that there must be a man somewhere behind the scenes. And we have to get away from these sort of things. People will talk. They will say what they say. You know your truth. Live your truth and be yourself. I think that is the best piece of in, uh, advice that's coming out of this space today is be truly yourself. And that's one of the things I can say over time has the self-awareness that has come with age has been a great advantage. Do mentor young ladies. And I always say, spend time getting to know yourself because there's a lot of noise, a lot of people speaking at you. There are a lot of things that are being thrust upon you and you'll be like a flag in the wind if you don't really have a level of self-awareness. So I think the important message is to let women know that this is a field like any other. The finance field, we have women in all other fields and sectors who are excelling. I know there's a bit of that picture of investment banking and it's a boys club and things like that. But the ladies on this panel have said it. The ceiling is breaking, if not broken already. So do not hold yourself back with those notions. You are capable, you are able, you have everything that it takes to get into this space. I think the thing is to understand yourself and chart the path that makes sense to you. The other thing that we need to stop doing is copy pasting and trying to keep up with the Joneses because one person went about it a particular way, doesn't mean that it will work for you. So take time to understand what is this career in finance that I'm trying to pursue? What does it look like? What does it entail? 
Do I have what is required for it? Do I need to bridge any gaps? The other thing is these journeys, we do not go them alone. I think a number of the ladies here have spoken about having mentors, having people to walk the journey with you, to guide you. Educate yourself. Do not wait for people to come and tell you. And that is one of the things I keep telling the young people is with technology and all the information at your fingertips in this day and age, it's not like when we had to walk all the way to the National Library and open big books to do research. Empower yourself. Information is knowledge. And what that does is it gives you the tools to navigate that space with more control. Because you're not coming from a point of not knowing anything at all. So whatever people say around you goes. So educate yourself about this career path that you want to take. But like I said earlier, is also adaptability and being able to pivot. We have two lawyers on here who are not practicing. Perhaps people out there will be like, oh, how could you do that? You know, all this time and money was spent getting you a law degree. But that is the beauty about education and getting this level of knowledge is you're able to leverage it. Because if you just remain in that space without growth, that is where you also get frustrated, where you're not finding that you're moving with, within your career. So I would say, know yourself, really, really try and understand who you are. What kind of environment would you flourish in? Because it is a tough industry. As much as it's an exciting, great place to be, it is tough. It calls for a certain toughness, can I say, to navigate some of these spaces. So understand yourself and position yourself appropriately for that career in finance. Thanks, Joy. Thanks a lot. Phyllis, I'm coming to you now. So there are questions about valuing oneself. And I think Lillian, Rosie, and Diane have also mentioned they couldn't really have stated it, stated it more concretely because being oneself is what has stood out, at least from hearing what Lillian, Rosie, and Diane have talked about. But valuing oneself is something that maybe many women, not even maybe, but many women across the continent find it really difficult to put a value on themselves and that in a way affects their career growth or affects our career growth. And the issue of mentorship and having role models has also been said by Diane, Lillian and Rosie. But how does one start to leverage on the value, knowing themselves, valuing themselves, putting a value to what they're worth? That seems to be a really difficult situation because the kind of workspaces we're in, we're in workspaces where it's lower pay for women, higher pay for men, and understanding one's value is one of the difficult areas to navigate for women. How do we go about that, Phyllis? Thanks. Thanks for the question. And uh, yes, it's true that that is a real challenge. And uh, I just want to weigh in on some of the challenges and then come down to what you've spoken about. So in my view, one of the other challenges women face is the unconscious bias, which is basically believe in gender stereotypes and also some of the subconscious attitudes about female capabilities. Obvious and outright bias may not be there, but unconscious bias is still very alive around us in society and even in our own minds. And that affects and limits how far we go sometimes. The other thing, of course, is the issue of the fear of failure and timidity. And you speak to that. 
that a lot of time we don't have the confidence in who we are. We don't want to appear like we are taunting our accomplishments. We are not standing by our success. So I think for that one, it's really just going back to knowing our purpose as individuals. So it's not about one day when I have a great position, I'll be a great person. We are great people no matter where we are. Because from where I sit, we are all created with a purpose. We all have a reason for being. There's a value that we bring to the table, that we bring to society. And if we approach life in that grounded way, that it doesn't matter. It's not about getting to the top. It's about that wherever we are, we have the ability to influence. We have the ability to make a difference and that we have a purpose. If we just walk backwards and start by understanding who we are, understanding what our purpose is, knowing and having that confidence and belief in ourselves, even when we doubt ourselves, it doesn't mean that we won't have seasons or moments when you doubt ourselves. But if we are grounded deeply and know why we exist, our purpose, and we know that we are adding value in whatever space we are in, and we continuously invest in ourselves because the reality is if you're not investing in yourself, whether it's through reading, through mentorship, through coaching, through attending even spaces like this where people are having conversations, through the ability to learn, even when it's difficult and keep going and going through the storm, even when things are difficult, that continues to build our self-confidence. When we see ourselves succeeding at things we thought were difficult, it builds our self-confidence. So also the other thing is the courage to act because that timidity also sometimes holds women back. Either they don't apply for the position they needed to or they are the most qualified for and someone else ends up getting it. We don't put up our hands. We don't ask the question. We hold ourselves back. So really coming out and knowing that we really are already powerful, we're already worthy, we're already abundant, and we just don't believe it yet. So we just need to believe it and really have that belief in ourselves and own our success to be able to overcome some of these barriers. Another issue maybe we haven't touched on is the issue of balancing responsibilities and the demands from society. The reality is as women, in many cases, we do have more of those demands. And someone did speak about the need to choose your partners correctly because they can have an impact on either you growing in your career or you having actually impediments in growing. So our social support systems, using them to support us and not trying to do everything alone or trying to be everything at the same time. I always say we cannot be all things at the same time. There's a season for everything. There's a season where you need to do more for your family. There's a season where we need to grow our careers. So understanding that it doesn't mean that you won't do everything. Maybe you won't do it at the same time. But at different seasons in your life, you can be the best CEO. In some seasons, you can be a, the great mom. But really knowing that we need to balance those responsibilities, take advantage of our social systems, build that social capital that enables us then to be able to balance some of these responsibilities well. Thanks. Thank you so much for that. And knowing your purpose, I think that is something that has really stood out. And balancing responsibilities, having that social support system, I think that's really important, especially given the different roles that we might be playing at different times, different seasons. At different seasons, one can be the best CEO, one can be the best mom. I love that. I'm inspired anyway. So I'd like for us to open up the space to anybody who has a question. And I'm sure there are quite a number because going by the comments, 
Let me just check and see. All right, Mongo Capital. Do we have quite hands raised? Because I would not want to miss out on anyone's burning questions. But in the meantime, we can just read through some of the comments that are coming through. Anne with an E. That's your username on Twitter. You're saying, this is awesome. Rosie, keep reinventing. Adapt to the situation and environment you're in. Very sound advice. And we're having one coming in from Genius. Did I did I pronounce that right? All right. Someone needs to read this. You go to work every day to make the company that you work for richer and you're comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Alisa, you're saying excellent, inspiring conversation. Thank you, ladies, for sharing your journey and insights. There's no shortcut to success. With a can-do mindset, resilience, and the right values, nothing is impossible. I agree. And Simon Wandera, you're saying this is a very informative space. This acceleration for entrepreneurs. You're saying the woman's role and capabilities in finance and investment is robust. I agree. Purity, you're saying these are very great insights and Maggie, powerful insights as well. I'm inspired, to be honest. Evans, you're saying interesting discussions. I would love to work under a woman supervisor. They tend to be straightforward. Okay. All right. Anyway, in continuing with the conversation, I would like for us to also talk about, you know, because sometimes it appears that when women say they have male role models, there's a section of women who tend to think that we also need to have female role models. But from what I'm getting from at least all of us as speakers, it doesn't really matter who your role model is, as long as the impact is there, as long as the impact carries the weight that it should carry. But let's talk about that for a bit. We are all inspired by different people and from different spaces. I, for one, I think my background was information technology, and then I ended up in the media space. And I think the same has gone for Rosie, (laughs) Rosie and Phyllis and many other people who are on this space as well. So one of my mentors happened to have been someone who was doing something completely different. I think he was a political scientist. And the inspiration or the modeling that I got from him was that you just need to have a habit, a consistent habit that you wake up every day and do that one thing and do it consistently and doing it excellently. And just having that in the back of my mind every day was the one thing that really kept me going, kept me learning because I knew every day I had to wake up and read something. And that became a consistent habit to today, I would say was one of the things that has helped me in my career growth. What about Rosie? What about Lillian? What about Diane and Phyllis? What is that one thing that you have consistently done throughout your career that has kept the fire burning, that has kept the momentum, that has kept you reaching out for excellence, staying at the top and excelling while at it? Diane, I'm starting with you this time. Thank you, Joy. I think it's very similar to what you just said. I love reading. And I spend sometimes nights and weekends reading what is happening in the space, the future of banking, the future of work. And I really get inspired by everything I read. 
And that keeps me thinking we can do better. There are things that we need to do better, etc. And my colleagues always complain that I have a new project every other day. I have some of my colleagues on the space. And sometimes in the company, there's a project fatigue, but I need to have something new happening. Otherwise, I feel it's like giving up the job. So I, I constantly read on how things can get better. And I constantly try to also apply what I read, of course, contextualize because the context is different. And we need to keep moving. It's, it's like riding a bicycle. If you stop, you fall. So I really feel that I need to keep going. And, and for me to keep going, I need to keep reading, get inspired. I also now uh, more and more attend these Twitter spaces. I go to conferences to learn new things. And when I get back, you know, I have new ideas that I can start implementing. And that's really the way for us to keep going. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Diane. Phyllis? Thanks. Similar to what Diane has said, for me, it's just constantly being open to learning, whether it's learning from books, learning from experiences, reflecting upon experiences so that you can pick the lessons from them, learning from others. So that includes mentors, having a coach. I've had a coach and that added a lot of value in my life. Keeping an open mind. So I read a lot. I try to learn new things. And that has really, really been something I've been very, very deliberate about. But most importantly for me is always beginning with the end in mind and knowing where I want to end up and working towards that. So that has helped me to have a tunnel vision so that even with distractions or the noise around, you're very clear about what your end goal is and you're constantly working towards that. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Lillian? Yeah. In addition to learning, of course, I have lived, I think, with the ethos that we all need one another. It has been the bedrock of everything that I've applied myself to. And in the workspace, I have found that it is very important and I continue trying to build relationships. And when I look through my journey and all the challenging parts of the journey, the exciting part of the journey, the growth part of the journey, everything has been connected to people and that we cannot, we do not work in isolation. And so what I think I'm very conscious of is building relationships, is that with the people that I lead, with the people who I'm led by, with the people who I need and who need me, because at the end of the day, they make the journey easier, they make the growth easier, they make the learning easier. And so I, I would say the networking has been a, a major part of the network pool. All right. Thank you so much. We all need one another. So building relationships, absolutely important. And Phyllis mentioned having an end goal sort of keeps the focus. Rosie, I want to hear your part. Thanks, Joy. Excuse me. I really resonated with what the ladies have said. I think for me, in addition to asking myself, what have I learned today? In addition to reading and keeping abreast and staving off any sort of boredom is also asking myself if I have done things for a bigger purpose than self. Because like you said, relationships are key. Networking is key. So I want to think and ask myself on a daily basis, the way I interacted with people, the way I did a piece of work, you know, conversation I had, things like that. Was it bigger than just me? Because at the end of the day, that is how we have I think, greater impact in our lives and in society. And that is how we see change and growth in others when we can also 
create space and time for them and pour into them because it can just be a job. It can just be a career. And I can be known as the best at this by myself sitting at the top. And they do say it's kind of lonely at the top by yourself. So is there a greater purpose than myself to what I'm doing? And it's definitely a journey in self-discovery. I think the ladies here would agree with me that in all the phases of life, you've discovered different facets of yourself, different phases of yourself. But for me, I think the ultimate is a greater purpose than myself. Thanks, Joy. Thanks a lot. I do have some questions that have come through my DMs. And the first one is a gentleman called Rogers. He's saying, have you experienced disrespect in the boardrooms that you sit in or in the line of work that you do? How have you dealt with it? I don't know who's going to go first on this one. Diane, have you experienced? Phyllis, Rosie, Lillian, Diane, let me start with Diane. Thank you, Joy. Disrespect, probably not. I think people would not dare disrespecting me. I remind people when I have an opportunity that I'm the CEO. But sometimes you see people looking at you thinking, is she going to do it? And and I make it a point to prove that I can indeed do it. But I don't feel it's disrespectful. I feel can she go to, to the limits? Sometimes when they push me to the limits, of course I have to go to the limits. But again, probably it's not the experience that other women leaders have. And when I think about it, the day I'll, I'll meet someone who is disrespectful, sometimes I wonder how am I going to react? So I look forward to hearing from the other women here to see and also to get advice how to react to these things that can happen. Thank you. <laughs> I like that. There is she going to do it? And just how you approach that, I think it's really inspiring. Rosie, have you been disrespected in your line of work? <laughs> How's that you dealt with it? Uh, I think there's, there's one that the company secretarial field, for instance, has been largely female dominated. And there's one of these scenarios that we would hear of often is you're in the boardroom, you are there as the legal advisor, the governance advisor, and what have you, but everybody would turn to you to serve tea. And I've heard many different women, they've taken it different. Like you said, sometimes it's how you take these things, how you perceive them. And let me just say, when it happened to me, I just said it's self-service and everybody served their own tea. And uh, I didn't feel very disrespected after that. Phyllis? No interesting question. I haven't had, probably what I've experienced is that experience of people doubting your capability, especially because I got into leadership positions when I was very young. So it's the same thing. Someone spoke about it. The, the fact that you are competent and you know what you're doing. So you go ahead, do what you're doing competently and do it well. And over one or two seasons, it disappears. But it's not disrespect, but you can see that bias in the mind sometimes of someone thinking, Hey, will she manage? <laughs> so that's what I've experienced, but not outright disrespect. All right. Lillian? No, likewise, actually, I haven't had any outright uh, notable disrespect journey to share. I think also I'm a strong believer that respect is reciprocal. And I, I tend to respect everybody in the way that I operate and I lead. And I have found that to be the case that I've received that also. I think there'll be some times when, and just like my colleague had mentioned with the boardroom, but those will be self-imposed, wherein even just by your innate nature, you wanted to be disposed to a certain way. And then you're constantly just correcting yourself like, no, no, no. Why are you putting yourself in that space in the first place? But I've never had any really dramatic 
experience of disrespect. I haven't. I love that. There's a question from Caroline and she's asking, can we as women change careers in our thirties or is there a limit? Because it doesn't seem easy on my end. It's an interesting question. I mean, yes, for me, of course. Okay. I've changed career many times in my 30s, in my 40s. And I, I hope I can still change career in my 50s. Exactly, right? And I, I think it's also in being building skills that are transferable. And you find that a lot of times you can do many things. And sometimes not all at once, but... When you have the underlying skills and we start to apply ourselves, and I think one of the ways, sometimes it's not as easy to make a 360, but that sometimes when we sense the need, we can start to put the building blocks wisely along the journey so that when transition needs to happen, it's easier. So not everybody can jump as straight forward as others, but it's not a big deal. People change careers at 40s and 60s and do many things. I think we're also in that space of what we call a portfolio career. Lots of people are doing more than one thing. And I believe as women, we're very multidimensional and we can be many things. And I consider myself to have a portfolio career. In addition to finance, I am pursuing things of the arts, which I'm interested in. I'm in social entrepreneurship and there's many things that we can be. And when we leverage wisely, why not? <laughs> Why not? Why not, indeed? To those of us who are sending questions to my DM, remember that you can also just type them right below the Mongo Capital tweet about this particular space, or you could just use the hashtag Mongo Spaces and we'll be able to aggregate those questions and have them responded to. There's a question from Keep. Keep is saying, my wife has been underpaid for the longest time, and she is in the finance sector. How do women deal with the question of the pay gap? Rosie, do you want to go at it? Oh, you're going to ask me the hard one, Joy. I think there's room there for a little research, you know, talking to people in HR who have visibility on what pay scales look like. And they can also speak to the individual's specific experience. It's a tricky one, even whenever you're applying for a job, unless you have insider information, you know, from somebody who's within, it's very hard to know whether you're quoting too high or too low, but know your worth. I think that's a good place to start is what is your deal breaker number, but back that with some research, speak to people who are in the HR space, who do the recruitments, who would have visibility on that sort of thing. Many people don't like to speak about what they're earning, but if you do have friends within the sectors, do reach out to them as well. See if somebody's been willing to give you a range. If they're not able to tell you this is exactly what I'm earning, but give you a range that you can work with. But I think at the end of the day, if you're clear about what your number is, and you back that up with some good information, and then you align your search. Also, again, I do recommend that people really work with recruiters for some of these things, then it should give a breakthrough. Thanks. Lillian? No, I agree totally with what she said, and that these things have to be information-based. There are certain times when we impose the bias or imagine the bias, and that it should just be on merit. Right, Not so much even sometimes about what gender is having this. It's about the merit, the role. What is the range around industry? What is the range around where I am? And also when we confront it, it should not be a confrontation that is based on gender. It should just be an issue of, is this the value duly accorded to this role and this function? And to be able to wisely and courageously speak up when we see those anomalies, regardless of the gender. 
There's a question for you, Diane, here. It's coming from Emmanuel. He's asking, when moving to BK, as he, did you apply for the job or were you called to help the company? When it comes to these high-end positions, do you apply or you get called? Thank you for the question. I think for for these positions, you are headhunted. I think that that's the right word. You you don't apply, but you get a call. I, even today, I get calls from companies across the world who are looking for board members or even for roles, I don't apply. You get headhunted or pushed and they ask you if this will be interesting and you go through a process and that's what happens for me. And I guess also for my next move, I don't think I'm, I'm not applying for any position, but I think for next move, it would be similar. But I wanted to also come back to the question about the person who says his wife is and has been underpaid in the financial sector for a long time. The easiest thing to do is to change jobs. I really believe if you feel you're underpaid, probably it's the case, you're underpaid. And you need to put pressure on your boss. And I see it many times when people feel they're underpaid and they can't get the raise or the promotion they want. When they come and tell the management, I'm resigning, I'm getting a better offer. Probably people will look back and say, maybe we have not continued to reconsider the person because for us to hire the same skills on the market, we'll have to pay much higher. So most times it's better to just keep the person you have, give the person a raise, and then and everyone is happy. So sometimes you really need to go the hard way and look for options. And when you have an option, you come and you put the options in front of your boss and tell them, I have options. I don't think I'm being paid what I'm worth. And most women, I tend to tell them, you should know your worth, but also add tax because we tend to underestimate ourselves. So I always think, you know, this is my worth. And even if I add the VAT on top of that, it, should, it will probably be below what my real worth is. So that's my few words. Thank you. Right. Know your worth and add tax to it. I agree. There's another question here from Joanne. Who is asking? Joanne Kirimi, you're asking. There are notions about female bosses being unpredictable, emotional, and generally bad leaders. Wow. Wow. Okay. How can we address such biases and attitudes at the workplace? Phyllis, you want to? Oh, my. Yeah, that's one of those unconscious biases, I think. There's definitely that bias out there that either women don't have leadership skills, or they would even say that if women are working together, they'll always be fighting. And a lot of times those are unconscious biases. They are not realities. I can see a number of female leaders on this call, and I don't believe that has been the experience for them. But it means that constantly as leaders, whether we are male or female, because the men also have their fair share of what is challenging about male leaders, we should be honing our leadership skills to listen with empathy to people, to accept other points of views, Going through coaching because it enables you to be conscious about some of the things you may be doing wrong that could help improve your leadership skills. So I don't think it's a real issue, but it's an unconscious bias that has been perpetuated a lot about women leaders. But that has not been my experience, at least with the women leaders I have worked with, I've worked under. I haven't had the same experience. They can be a good boss who's a man, a good boss who's a woman. You can have a difficult boss who's 
a man or a woman. I don't think it's necessarily about their gender. Yep, I agree 100%. There's a question from Lesuza Boniface who is saying, as heads of your institutions and given that you are perceived to be the custodians of the organization culture, what challenges have you faced when instilling and driving a certain culture at the firm? Is interesting. Diane, Lillian, Rosie, Phyllis. That's an interesting question. Uh, we actually are going through a cultural transformation at, at the bank. So I have maybe a, some experience, some early experience I can share. I think it really has to come from the top. We want to have a culture that is probably not egalitarian, but we want everyone to speak up. And it, it really has to come from the top. When I am chairing meetings, I have to make sure I get opinion, feedback from almost everyone in the room. And yeah, I really feel the corporate culture is the tone that has to be given at the top. And that's what we try to do. Now, there are many initiative that we are running in meetings, the way we run our meetings, we want everyone to have a say and an opinion to give for every decision that is to be taken. So it's difficult because we come from a very authoritarian culture. So it's really like a muscle that we have to exercise every time. Ask people, what do you think? Do you think it's the right move? And it, it takes time. But again, I think if the top is given and if there's consistency, it's not something that I do today and the next day I'll take all the decisions and we finish the meeting. I think consistency will help us to get to uh, the, the target culture that we want. Thank you. Consistency. Phyllis? Thanks. I think understanding and appreciating that culture change is a change process and there will be resistance to change. So approaching it from a way that would ensure that you carry people along and that first of all, they understand the purpose of why you're changing, what it means for the organization. That way you're then able to create a movement that can drive the organizational culture change. The leadership from the top is critical because the tone is set from the top. And just always knowing that as leaders, what we demonstrate in our behavior speaks more than what we say about what the culture should be. The culture is really the lived behavior that we demonstrate at the workplace. So just that consciousness as leaders and knowing that once it, people see you living it and that you've also explained and really made them to understand the why behind why it's important to have a certain culture, that I think goes a long way in helping to support the change. Right. There's a question here from Mujisha Caesar Eric, who is asking, were there some people undermining your successes and discouraging you on ground of your gender? I think we sort of answered that question. There was a question that was asked by Rogers about the gender issue. But I don't know, is this any different from the responses that you gave earlier? I think there was a question there that was similar to what Shisha has asked. Have you experienced disrespect in the boardrooms or line of work that you do? Is there anyone who would like to add something to that question? I think it's probably similar to the previous question. And there's another question here that's coming through. I think there's someone called Shadrach who is asking about opportunities for young women starting their careers in finance and business. I think that's an interesting question. He's asking for his girlfriend. Wow. All right. 
Okay. What are the opportunities in the business and finance space, Rosie? Oh, wow. I couldn't speak of a better time to want to or try to get into the space because the opportunities are so diverse. I mean, like we've seen from this panel, we all come from different backgrounds. We've studied different things, but we find ourselves in the sector. So again, turn to research. Just honestly, just Google that crazy thing that you're thinking and you'll be surprised that there are actually opportunities like that out there in terms of jobs within banking, insurance, within private equity. I'd like to speak about the space that I'm in, having pivoted from legal to sustainability and ESG. There's huge opportunity around that. And back when I started, there wasn't a lot of training around that, a lot of on-the-job training, but now there are courses that people can pursue get yourself certified and leverage yourself into these positions. So I'm assuming that at least on some level, she has a qualification that can fit within the finance sector. Let's start there. If not, then look at what you can do to bridge that gap. But honestly, I think a simple search would bring up a myriad of, 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 of opportunities, some of them that you may not have thought about. And again, I've said it really does help to sign up to recruitment websites, follow them on LinkedIn and things like that, and see the kind of jobs that they're posting. We are also seeing, especially in, 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 in the PE space and with startups, they want people who are wearing several hats, you know, so you're not just coming in perhaps to do just one thing. So look at your skills. How transferable are they when you are applying for the jobs? That's another thing that we talk about in the mentorship program that I'm in is sit with that job description and align your skills with it. Even if you don't have the qualifications that are listed there, but you have skills that are transferable to that, you could find that you're able to find a space within there. So I would honestly just say that there's a lot going on. It's almost mind-blowing the kind of things that are there. Remember, startups are looking for people who can help them scale, who can help them move up really quickly. So that's also a, a great place to look within the finance sector. I think th there are very many unusual opportunities that have come up more recently. So do go for it and all the best. Lillian? Well, on the opportunity side, um, no, I guess I see that it's an East African audience. And I guess it's better when the people in the space give the contextualized support. But just maybe to add to the two prior questions you had. There are actually a number of people from Nigeria. Oh, yeah. really? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Oh, my assumption was wrong. Uh, but so, sorry, before I jump to that, I was sort of saying that just also on the question you had asked prior, you know, the gentleman asked when you said it was close to the respect question, is really, it's for us to, to, as leaders to admit that we don't know everything. And sometimes it's been able to be wise enough to know how to use what we have. That sometimes in that space, when we are trying to be who we're not or force roles that we are not the most capable to force, then sometimes it can put us in that position where people can undermine what we have. So sort of learning how to play to your strengths as a leader and knowing when to delegate and how to allow people to thrive. Sometimes as women, I think when we have that issue of self-esteem, when we're coming in and we're thinking we're already positioning for disrespect, and then sometimes we find that subconsciously we now start becoming a certain way that also can lead to disrespect and there's really no need for that by simply knowing where your strengths are and knowing how to ride on the 
on the strength of the people that you lead. On the opportunity side, I think maybe just the issue of the tech space. I think there's so much happening now. Everything is digitalized and there are women doing fantastic works also in the digital space, converting everything convertible to our tabs. And it's really just saying that, you know, on the brokerage side, because that has the trajectory of the growth, that's a little bit of a challenging side because the market has not had, at least in our space, as much depth and breadth as it ought to have relative to the number of players. But what we're seeing now is people just sort of being able to broaden the scope and people giving you range across different jurisdictions, doing different assets, but building from within and so it's a wide space of different places and avenues that people can play from, extremely wide. And thank you, Joy. Uh, opportunities, Diane, if you'd like, I'm sure there's so many applications that come through your organizations on like a daily, especially now in the digital space, people are always sending, going by my LinkedIn direct messages, and I'm not even an employer. I can't imagine what it's like on your end. So... Just take us through some of those opportunities, Diane, then I'll go to Phyllis. So there are many opportunities as an accountant in the digital space. We are now hiring not only engineers, but designers, front-end, back-end, etc. So engineers. So opportunities are there. Now that the world is digitizing, we are playing catch-up. And we now at the bank want to develop most of our applications in-house. Because we believe in the value of creating these assets. These are digital assets for us. And yeah, there are opportunities. And we launched recently an academy, a Biki Academy. We started with the first cohort of 26 people, 50, 50, 50, 13 young women and 13 young men. And I think all of them are going to thrive in the organization. And there are opportunities beyond the bank at the group because we have sister companies in insurance, in investment banking. So there, there are many opportunities. I think we want people who are very diligent, who have, of course, very good educational background. And we are not only looking at people who've done finance or economics. We are hiring architects, engineers, of course, computer scientists, etc., data scientists. This is a, a new discipline that is very on demand in our market. So what I'm telling young people Go for technology, go for data science. Yeah, this is where the opportunities of tomorrow are. Thank you, John. Phyllis? Thanks, Joy. I think for opportunities in the finance sector, it's been well covered. And the reality is in the world we live in today, the opportunities are not just local. They are global. I have a number of young people who I know work online for companies that are not even based in their physical location. So in addition to those opportunities, it's just to really realize that it's become a global market and there's the possibility to even have opportunities beyond the borders. And someone did speak about a portfolio career and also the ability for them to juggle and do more than one thing, which I've seen a number of young people do today because of the skills they have, even managing social media for people as side hustles in addition to the job they're doing, their day jobs, whether it's in finance or any other sector. But there's also the opportunity for those who are interested in production to get into manufacturing, which is something I've seen a lot of young people also look at getting into value addition. So the opportunity also to be entrepreneurs in that type of space and to bring in the aspect of technology in, into manufacturing, because with the fourth industrial revolution, the nature of jobs in the sector also has shifted significantly and data is becoming relevant, the internet of things 
the ability to analyze, use that then to make decisions that drive our production. So there's a whole part of technology that is then becoming relevant. That is an interesting space also. But I think I'll conclude by saying just going in with that open mind and the ability to know that whatever they studied, they can all, always build on it with developing new skills and learning in areas that they are passionate about. Great. Allow me to also recognize some other women at the top who have joined this space, women and men. Alice, she is the country director BPN Rwanda. They promote value-based entrepreneurship, and she's also a board member of RDB, Rwanda Development Board, and also a board member of I&M Bank in Rwanda. And we also have on the space today, Catherine Moraga, who is the managing director for Microsoft Africa Development Center. It's great to have you all joining this space and some gentlemen also who encourage women in business and finance. We have Saibu Hulibali, who is the MD Vivo Energy Rwanda, and Ivan Atuyambe, who is the founder for One Young Africa and Arusha Debates. Great to have you all on here. And we might be having CEOs on here with different bios on their Twitter profiles. So excuse me if I do not recognize you going by your profiles. But yes, it's great to have you all in your respective capacities joining this very important space. We have a speaker, Ilonzo. You have a minute and a half. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. I'll try and stick to your timer. Look, my message is actually really brief. I'm with EFG in, in Nairobi. I'm head of equities here. Thank you very much for all the ladies that have joined this Twitter space. And thank you to everyone else who's listening. I think for EFG's perspective, growing that cohort of women who are active in the markets, who are trading, is really a key part of what we're trying to do as we grow our retail presence. Suddenly, I think as a demographic that with all the events that we've been doing recently, and this is one of a few that we've done and the uptake has been really successful and there seems to be a lot of thirst for knowledge and for information. And I think it's something for us to definitely play a part. So we're happy to facilitate. So anytime you can reach us on Twitter or on our emails, I think for us, it's really important to keep up this engagement. And thank you very much. I think just listening to the stories have been really amazing from the speakers, really inspirational stories. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I guess with that, we're going to have the final remarks. So do I call it parting shots? Um, Diane is reminding me it's a Friday. What do people do on Fridays these days? I think the pandemic kind of messed us up. Sometimes we don't even know what to do with ourselves. But parting shots, please. I've learned so much and I know for sure everybody on this space has picked something from this great conversation. So in parting, I'll start with... Dr. Diane Karusisi, and then to Phyllis, and then Rosie, and we'll finish with Lillian. Just to say thank you for inviting me to this Twitter space. It was delightful to share ideas, opinions, and stories with the other phenomenal women on this panel. I think as women, those who have the will to lead, I think, go for it. You have a lot to bring to this world. We are riding on the shoulders of our mothers and grandmothers who've already laid the ground. So let's go and contribute to a better world. Thank you. Felice. What thanks. Thanks a lot, Joy Doreen and everyone on the panel, Lilian, Rosie and Diane. It's been a pleasure. It's been a well-spent Friday evening. 
Joy Doreen, probably uh, you're right. We're not going out. Instead, we are sitting and having serious discussions on a Friday evening. <laughs> so that's been interesting. But yeah, really happy about what we've learned today. But still, because we are with the finance sector, trying to see how we can continue to build products that women can access. Because one of the biggest challenges for women in business, unfortunately, is still access to finance and credit. And it's one of the things that also I think would be a disadvantage as we get into the Africa continental free trade area. So I'm doing an A's in our fellowship and trying to figure out how do we support women and finance them to be able to access the opportunities under AFCFTA. So happy to have this conversation with the finance professionals in the room that have been part of this. But yeah, wishing everyone a good weekend ahead. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Rosie. Thank, thank you, Joy. It has been an absolute pleasure. I am in awe to have been in the presence of my fellow panelists. And thanks to everybody listening. My parting shot would be just to repeat what I said earlier, leverage, adapt, position, and reinvent. And then if you'll allow me, Joy, I will do a shameless plug of a book that I think every woman who's in business should get a hold of. It is called A Candid Handbook for Women Doing Business in Kenya by Patricia Okello and JC Niala. It's a workbook that helps you sort of navigate the different things in business. But like my colleague has said, let's go forth and be awesome. Thank you. Let's go forth and be awesome. Lillian Olubi. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think the final word will be that money matters. Finance matters. And so for all of us listening is that whether we're thinking about finance on a professional standpoint or as an investor, we should all be looking in as women. It pays to be financially independent and not just from a selfish perspective is that uh, the humanity depends on us. The nations need us independent. Our families need us independent. The world needs us independent. And so we should look in and not be, uh, not be anything but savvy about our finance. Thank you. All right. It's been very insightful, very educative, very informative, very knowledge-filling and inspiring. Thank you all so much for making time for this space and also to Mongo Capital for making sure that they bring very important people to these spaces to encourage and inspire the next generation of leaders. Much, much appreciate we can keep the conversation going on the Mwango Capital spaces. And also there was a hashtag, she makes money moves, as well as women in business. So thank you all so much. I appreciate the time taken. I hope we've been knowledge filled and let's keep this conversation going. Allow more women in leadership positions because we can actually do drive economies. All right. My name is Joy Doreen Bira. You can follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever. I am a business media personality, strategic communicator. I moderate conversations. I speak at events. And I have a strong passion for financial markets, for micro and macro economics, as well as renewable solutions, technology women empowerment and so many more but thank you all so much enjoy the weekend and we'll see you on the next space hopefully 